Today on the Therapy Dogs Australia podcast, Amy, Sam and myself dive into risk management in the animal-assisted therapy workplace. If you think this isn't something you need to worry about as an animal-assisted team, think again. We cover a range of topics to get you thinking about possible risk areas that may need attention in your own workplace. This is golden advice, so we hope you enjoy soaking it all up. Okay, well, welcome everyone to yet another fantastic episode uh, with the Therapy Dogs Australia podcast for 2023. It's our second episode. Um, We have Sam King and Amy Hodgkinson here today, and we're going to discuss risk management. And that's going to be a bit of an umbrella (laughs) because I think (laughs) we might have other episodes as well. We might elaborate on some aspects of that. Yes. Hello, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. I think this is actually, is this our first podcast with Amy or is, oh no, we've done some schools. We've done, yeah, we've done one, but it's nice to have you back, Amy. Hi, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> so when we talk about risk management, I mean, there's probably a few very uh, clear areas um, to sort of bring up first. Uh, so Amy, do you want to kick us off with with that? I think risk is a really interesting area to talk about because we often don't realize the risks until something terrible happens. And I think (laughs) as a Therapy Dogs Australia team, we hear about some pretty awful situations that have happened um, from our participants who will share um, Mm -hmm. journeys that they've had in the past um, and even just not realizing how closely they skated to something serious happening as well. So I think there's a lot of um, vulnerability if we just assume that, well, I know what a dog is. I've got a dog at home and I love my dog. I'm going to share my dog with everyone and everything's going to be okay. Um, And sadly, that's not always the case. So I think it's really an important topic to talk about, but not a topic that necessarily everyone seeks out to find out more and really understand why do we need to learn about animal-assisted therapy and why do we need to learn about specific handling techniques and all those sorts of things? And it's um, obviously a topic we're very passionate about. So it's it's good to be able to discuss it um, in this context. And also with um, one of our FAQs is why should we study with Therapy Dogs Australia if there's no mm-hmm. regulation at the moment? But this is one of the reasons is because we will cover a lot of that that stuff and that's really important that you have the right training correct yeah Um, yeah just because there isn't regulation doesn't mean there's not lots of steps that we've learned are risky um or Mm. that are going to keep our our clients safe or participants safe but also keep our dogs happy and healthy and enjoying so it's really about best practice um, at this stage of the industry um, and we have an obligation to learn about best practice otherwise what are we doing (laughs) Exactly. I also really think that um, sometimes people are mistaking that lack of sort of formalized regulation for responsibility. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that being, you know, not being formally regulated means that you don't have any responsibility. I think those are really different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the best practice thing is what we talk, you know, we talk about that all the time because, you know, as practicing professional, like we're professionals in our industry, so we know that you know there are best practices and things um, that we should do because they're the right thing to do, uh, or the the best and closest that we know to be right at the time. 
Um, and that can be that can be evolving and changing and we have to evolve and change with that. But being like, quote unquote, unregulated, that does not mean that you are not responsible for your actions. Everyone is responsible for their actions personally and professionally. And we we putting your head in like I sometimes do enjoy putting my head in the sand over things um, because I'll like, you know, hear about something or not therapy dog stuff, but well, I don't know, there might be specific examples, but um, just life stuff. Like when I find out about like, oh, your home insurance needs to like have that shed on it. And I'm like, oh, I just, <laughs> yeah. I don't yeah. understand that. And I don't know, like I tried to get this home insurance quote. I don't know, like I remember what, what, why I was doing it, but they just, they wanted me to value everything in the house. Like what would it cost to build that shed? And I was like, why would I know that? Like I'm, I'm a psychologist and a dog trainer. I'm, I just, I actually don't know how, how much it costs to build a shed. I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. Like if it was to burn down things like that, like I haven't insured it because I'm like, it's too hard. I don't understand. I just put my head in the sand over it and go, like, I just don't, I can't, I can't do it. You don't even this. know where, you don't know where to start. I don't well. even know like, where to start. You, how do you find that out I in don't, the first place? Exactly. And I would have bought the insurance if they had of like, just told me like, well, that kind of shed would usually cost this much. Because I asked the guy, he was like, well, I don't know. I'm an insurance guy. And I was like, well, I don't know. How do I know? Like, (laughs) (laughs) so that kind of stuff, like I get it. Like, and I, I hate that feeling. I hate feeling challenged by things that I don't understand. And I hate feeling like I get nervous and scared of like, like, oh, I don't, I don't understand it. And I was just going to pretend I don't haven't yeah. come across this at all. Uh, and I know that people are doing that about therapy dog stuff too. And that's something that I do know about and I can, I can understand yeah. that sort of stuff. And we talk about it all the time, but that's why we want to try and bring this information to people in ways that are um, accessible, uh, like this podcast and the other stuff that we do, but uh, accessible, but also non non as non-confronting as possible and so you know we're not pointing fingers of blame at people and we're not calling people out we're just trying to share information to make this a bit less scary for you so that Mm. you don't have to put your head in the sand because I would really like for everybody's sheds to be insured (laughs) I think complacency pays a really big um, part as well because it can be scary to try something new and it can be scary when we're first thinking about the idea of introducing a dog into our context and we we might do some research yeah. planning at that point. But if we then decide, oh, well, there's a really good day that, it, you know, it's a staff day or whatever and we justify it and we say, well, I'm taking my dog in and everyone loved it and it was such a great day and everything went really well as well as I know as a layperson with a pet dog. Mm-hmm. I feel like everything went really well. I'm going to do it again. And then I'm just going to do it again. And nothing went wrong. So everything is fine. Yeah. And that's what I hear a lot. Yeah. Same. And that's what gives me the shudder because constantly always, <laughs> you then think, well, what don't you know? And what weren't you, what, what were you looking for? Do you know what you were looking for? And do you know how you should be practicing and all of those things? Yeah. Because we're just a ticking time bomb in so many contexts. And we've heard this um, so many times where it was, you know, way down the track that something happened. <sighs> And, and I think it's a barrier of signs as well. Like what you were saying, yes. Amy, 
Like if you, if you've had the training and you're aware of risk management and everything that encompasses that, you'd probably be quite attuned to the signs where you're like, oh, everything was fine, but I did notice this little interaction or this little moment that, ooh, may become something down the track. Yeah. Um, I yeah. think it alienates people too. Um, I'm I'm really seeing people, um, they've kind of like you like it like you said, Amy. Like it sort of just happens, and then it's sort of just happening, and then you know, all of a sudden it's six or 12 months down the track and maybe everything is going fine and maybe your dog's perfect and maybe you're a legend. That is absolutely a possibility. But I think it's alienating. So you're not a part of anything. You're not a, you, who are you talking to about stuff? What community are you involved in? Are you doing peer stuff as well? You know, like I think it is quite alienating and ostracizing because the industry's expectation is that you've done some training and assessment with yourself and your dog. Um, and I think, no, you know, those people, they, some of them come to us and, you know, we're obviously, we welcome them absolutely. But I know that it's hard for people to be like, oh, yeah. So I kind of was just doing my own thing. And, you know, I think that that makes them feel like, you know, now it's hard to join up with an organization because you've been off doing your own thing for a while. And now it feels a bit like you can't quite, you know, I'm not a part of anything like. I think the other problem that that creates as well is it's, it's wonderful because they're open to learning new things and they bring really great experiences. They Um, do. Discussions. It's so great to hear, well, that surprised you that that worked and how did you do that? And really, really great discussions. But on the flip side, they then find in a majority of cases, and I'd say 100% of cases, they change the way they practice as yeah. they learn yeah. about best practice and they learn why. Yes, every time. About, these are the rules. This is what we do. It's about why do these, why should we be doing things this way and breaking that down? And all of the time we find they change their practice. So I think about the client's experience or participant's experience and they then need to adapt as well. So the dog might be handled differently. The situation might be managed differently um, and the whole setup of the clinic or the practice might be managed differently. And then how how is that for your participants? Um, Because they have to adapt to the changes that you're putting in place. Um, So there's a bit of... um, a bit of an impact down the line, um, yeah. not only yeah. to ourselves and how we practice, but also to our participants, which they're our, they're our service users. That's what we mm. should be focusing so much of our, um, you know, delivery and, and service on and how we structure that. So it's interesting implications, isn't there? There really are. And, you know, I don't want to give people listening to this and they're like, this isn't relevant to me. I want to know something else now. We just want to touch on, you know, we this is an everyday thing for us. You know, that's why we do keep talking about it because it is literally every single day. We anyone who's trained with us knows that we get application. We do, we you apply to do our courses. We do that so that we can make sure that um, the training that we offer is going to be suitable for you and your situation. Um, we don't want to, you to pay and then start a course and then we go like, oh, we actually don't 
we don't support that. Um, so an example of that would be facility dogs. Like we don't train facility dogs that are owned by a facility. Um, we'll only train a dog that's owned by its handler. Um, so, or, you know, someone very close to them. Um, because we've seen the welfare of facility dogs in the past not be managed effectively. And until we're in a situation in this industry where there is a regulator who can force you to manage your dog properly, um, we don't, we can't do anything about that. And we've come up against that in the past where we've tried to educate people with facility dogs. Um, and it's been very, very sad, very sad. And I'll never do it again until someone else, until there is someone I can call and say, you need to go and get that dog because it's now biting people. It's been moved from home to home. It's now doing X, Y, Z. Actually, all three, no, two out of three facility dogs that I'm thinking of now bit people. Um, the third one, I don't know if it bit anyone or not. Um, I'm not going to, I can't tell you it didn't. Um, but I know for a fact that the other two bit people. Yeah. So in terms of um, risk management, <laughs> where this is a real thing and we are hearing, we hear this stuff and that was, there was nothing I could do about those dogs. And so, you know, I welcome regulation when it, when it does come about because it is heartbreaking to know. And we wrote letters and we did what we could do and we offered advice and we offered help and, and things like that. Um, and unfortunately, there is just there was nothing we could do for those dogs. So, you know, as far as managing risk for us, like that's why we do do application forms and stuff like that. But on those forms, you know, every day there's someone that's taking a dog to a workplace. Um, and, you know, it's often they're taking dogs to a workplace five days a week. They're taking dogs to a workplace when a dog is still a puppy, um, things like that. So, you know, that's why we do harp on about this topic is because it is actually every single day that we are facing it. So that's why we want to get this information out there. Now, for everybody who has done training um, of some sort, so it doesn't have to be our training, but someone's training. So when we say training, we are, uh, our standard, so our expectation is that the dog has been trained and assessed and the human so the handler must be trained and assessed also. And I think that that has been left out of the conversation previously, both by us. I think we don't talk about that enough um, and everybody else. So it's really, really important that we're understanding the handler must be trained in things like um, canine management. So, you know, we do in our courses uh, canine body language, um, first aid, canine first aid, things like that. So, you know, your animal, and we, we do your uh, training, the dog. So our course covers the dog side of stuff, but we're also talking about your training as in you, the facilitator of the human-animal bond. So we do all of that handler training for you too, and that is why our courses are split into clinical and community streams because that is different. So you're if you're in the clinical course and you're there because you're a registered professional, so you might be a psychologist, an OT, a speechy, social worker, whatever it is, teacher, whatever, um, you're offering animal-assisted therapy in a professional uh, setting, uh, which means that the standard for you is going to be a lot higher. Uh, those in the community courses, those guys, so um, we get teachers and stuff, like anyone can do the community course. Some people just choose to do it because it's cheaper and it's um, the dates suit them. Um very, very, very similar, but we cover all the dog stuff the same. Like the do all 
the, the content's the same across the two courses. Just the clinical course, it goes into a, a little bit more, we're a little bit more, uh, you know, intense with your responsibilities because we're taking into account your responsibilities as a professional. So that's coming from other, you know, registered psychologists and teachers and things like that because we understand that. And we, we do unpack um, therapeutic interventions, incorporating mm -hmm. our dog a lot more in those conversations and sessions as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the ethics stuff is is far more, it's it just, it bleeds into every topic, you know, like it, it's because it's a consideration for everything you do, especially like Amy and I are psychologists. So we're very, very heavily regulated as um, professionals. So we are making sure that, you know, that is coming across to other professionals, other people that are registered with APRA or wherever, whoever your bodies are. Um, it's actually very, very important. That So best practice stuff is super, super, super important in, in these industries. So um, that's why the clinical course is a bit different to the community, but the the um, content is the, the bones of it are the same. We just um, change it up a little bit for the community guys who don't need to hear us harping on quite so much. Well, about and the ethical considerations are often different. So they are discussions, um, but there's still ethical considerations. It's not black and white. And we do have to think about so many different aspects in the way that we work, um, as well as the dog and the animal welfare, um, our participants and who we're working with and what we're trying to achieve, as well as what our own goals are. And I think mm -hmm. if, we, if we can really unpack that, then it leads you to make really good decisions and reduce risk for everyone and increase yep. the um, benefits of what you're doing, which is awesome. Yep. But that also, I think ethical discussions and considerations don't go just in our course. I think they're an ongoing you know, things are coming up all the time and just like psychologists and any professional practice should be engaging in supervision or peer consultation or all of those practices yep. to unpack some of the ethical dilemmas that happen, um, how we're going to work. And that is so true in animal assisted therapy as well. That doesn't stop. So yeah. I think we've, we've recognized that and certainly tried to offer more opportunities for group supervision or peer consultation and things like that. And we'll continue to strengthen that because we're living under a rock if we don't think that these discussions need to keep happening and that we're not constantly trying to weigh up um, the pressures and, and the needs of lots of different stakeholders in the things that we're doing. Absolutely. And I think how that comes circles back around to your risk management. So, you know, we keep going back to these ideas of best practices and stuff like that. I guess, you know, for everyone who's done training and they've been assessed and everything's up to date and all that sort of stuff. When we're looking at risk assessment, we're looking at risk mitigation. So we, we're assessing risk and we're looking for risks uh, in a risk assessment so that we can mitigate them. So it's not about identifying risks and then just being like, shit, I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> like the shed. Yeah, I hope that doesn't burn down. I have no idea what that's going to cost to rebuild. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so if we are identifying risks, and obviously the point is to mitigate them, <laughs> which you can't really do if you haven't identified them, but just identifying them is not, then we don't just, yeah, uh, well, there are some risks. 
there are risks involved, obviously, but we when in mitigation of risk, I guess there's lots of things that um, you know we can't control. Um, but we need to be showing that we have made our best effort to control for risks. So I guess in this part of the conversation, it might be worth talking about who who will you answer to um, in the event of a risk taking place? So I guess if we think about um, the stakeholders, so we've got the client, client, student, whatever, as a person, so them, their family, Etc. So if there is something that happens, then you know we've got responsibility to the client. Uh, I think you'll be having a conversation with your insurance company uh, in the event of you know something going pear shaped. I think you will uh, have a discussion with APRA. Uh, I think that will happen. It's that sort of thing has started happening. So I think they will be in touch with you at some stage <laughs> if something goes really. There's absolutely the uh, possibility for that or um, whoever your equivalent is. So APRA is the medical board. If people aren't aware, that's who our doctors and psychologists and people like that are registered with. So we they hold our registration. So um, they can uh, discipline us. So if we get um, found to be doing something that's not right, they can discipline. Uh, they can do things like remove your registration. They can suspend your registration. They can make you undergo further training and supervision to maintain your registration. Um, going through APRA, it's a like a tribunal thing. So um, what the process there is that someone makes a complaint, which is called a notification. So someone will make a notification about you and your practice. Um, and that can be another clinician. So it can be you know, like another psychologist can have a problem with you and make a notification. There's ethical stuff around that too. It's not worth me going into now. You're not really supposed to just do that, but um, that's neither here nor there for this conversation. Uh, but yeah, someone will make a notification and then from there, APRA will contact you and they'll, they'll send you the notification that's been made and you answer to it uh, and you provide your evidence and blah, blah, blah. And then they look at that at their like meeting. They have like a meeting. I think it's monthly. Um, and then they, this may, this may have changed, but um, they have a meeting and then they get back to you and they let you know either we need more information or we're happy with what you have provided. Um, and then it can accelerate further. So if they're not happy, then my understanding is then, then that you're coming in for a chat. So, and it's like, I think it's like a tribunal type situation. I don't know, because I haven't gotten that far with, um, <laughs> Not a goal. yeah. Um, so the, uh, health ombudsman is where, um, complaints go to as well. So, um, they sometimes go there and then they escalate them to APRA, uh, and sometimes they don't. So it can go both ways. Um, but that's a similar process with them as well. And you submit your um, paperwork and things like that. So um, in the interest of an interesting discussion, I've had a health ombudsman complaint. I've had an APRA complaint. I've had the Office of Fair Trade complaint. There's more. They'll come to me. So... You are 
going to be held responsible <laughs> for stuff you do. Funnily enough, these complaints were uh, related to Therapy Dogs Australia. They weren't related to my um, practice as a psychologist. So in... But often does it, if, pe- if dogs don't pass and teams don't pass, sometimes <laughs> you get upset by that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's not actually about the courses and what's delivered. <laughs> the reason I'm disclosing this is because I actually think it's quite... Um, I only just had made the decision right now. Actually, um, Max, let's just delete all this and start again. (laughs) (laughs) It was a long time ago. So it was very way, way, way back. I think it's six or seven years ago now. Um, So I can now talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Time has passed. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So I think why, you know, why it just made me think to bring it up is because, um, I so someone made it so someone didn't their dog didn't pass and they made a notification anyway it was quite um slanderous and all those sorts of things uh and and actually incorrect so uh I was lucky because uh of the setting that that took place in there were lots of witnesses but I'll just um say so when we first started doing these courses we used to do feedback forms every day so I'd have 12 people um in a course and I'd have 12 feedback forms for five days right so the reason we did that is because the course was in its early stages of development like we just do one feedback form at the end now um but I was guiding the development of the course off of people's feedback and so lots of changes took place early on I've always 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 taken on the feedback from our students and changed things and made things better and lots of stuff um fortunately this complaint happened in one of those early early courses so I had something like 70 something feedback forms daily feedback forms so that's what went to APRA was the because the complaint so the, the participant was submitting feedback forms every day with no complaints does that make sense? So like that I had on there, like, is there anything that we can improve on? Because I would then improve it the next day. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, cause they yeah. were doing five days, they were doing a week, Monday to Friday. Um, and so I would be, and so I had things on there, like, was there anything that wasn't clear from today? Was it, what was, what was good that stood out from today? Is there any questions you didn't get to ask? We had like a rating one yeah. to five for stuff as well of like, you know, does the presenter swear too much? The amount of times I've been in trouble for swearing too much by people is just—you have cut down. I've cut down yeah. so much. I used to swear the whole. Time. I love You've swearing. Taken on the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> I have taken on the feedback, and it's taken years. And also, you know, you're welcome, guys. But <laughs> it's been very hard. Okay, so, um, you know, I'd get feedback of that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> your it team takes- members your colleagues definitely provide on on um active feedback and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> to that. yeah exactly yeah um so this I had all this swearing. what'd you say Amy this wasn't about swearing no but I think swearing should be more accepted in the community because I think it's better than normal words so <laughs> so, so um 
I had like 70 something feedback forms and none of, so there was two people that put in notifications. So um, none of the feedback forms had any problems brought up during the week. Um, the, there was witnesses. So the things that they said in their complaints happened, I was able to go to other, and it was humiliating other course participants and I had them write statements for me. Um, so I had heaps of evidence, like heaps of evidence. Um, but the whole process was so stressful. Like back then I used to lose weight when I got stressed and I was looking good. <laughs> yeah. Again, we that. <laughs> cut that out. <laughs> I've, I've aged out of that now somehow. So dang it. So um, now, so the evidence I had was ridiculous, like stupid amount of evidence. Um, you wouldn't, you don't normally have that. So you, if you're some, if there's something that goes wrong in our settings, typically, so like um, being a psychologist, normally our stuff is one-on-one um, yeah. and there's no, like, there's no witnesses, there's no, evidence you know what I mean so I was very very lucky that that happened in a in a context where I did have plenty of evidence but I'll tell you right now you've got to answer to the questions you have to answer to it there's no like well stuff you it's not feedback it's not like I'll take that on board or I won't take that on board thanks APRA for your suggestions <laughs> that's thanks, not I'll how it works it. <laughs> and I think when we're talking about vulnerable in a lot of our contexts we're working with vulnerable populations whether it be physically vulnerable psychologically vulnerable etc it's about their perception of what happened and their yes. interpretation about what happened and then yep. it's having a discussion around what we know and what we observed and what their experience was and it only takes somebody um, perceiving a risk or mm -hmm. experiencing harm from their perspective for that complaint to initiate. And as yep. Sam's indicating, the risk of a lot of these one-on-one -on -one sessions, which is so common, increases the risk to where things go, how viable mm -hmm. animal-assisted therapy is for you and your team, um, whether there's serious implications for the dog. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to think about mouthing, for example, yeah. and how that can be interpreted, misinterpreted. And if you don't have a really good understanding of handling techniques in, in session and how to navigate, mi minimize or, or preferably eliminate mouthing yep. and be able to navigate those discussions, um, prepare for it, prevent it, um, observe the risks and intervene. So how we work with our dog can reduce the risk of that as well. But we're, we're really creating some pretty serious implications. I would hate for my dogs to be euthanized because the council have deemed them dangerous dogs and yeah. everything's out of control. So you can see how things can just escalate so yeah. quickly. And I'm more worried about that than fronting Arpa. And I certainly don't want to be navigating those discussions either. But my yeah. first thought is the implications to the dog. 
Absolutely. And then all of your other clients that are no longer able to work with that dog, say goodbye to that dog, whether they're, you know, whether they've been euthanized or not, it they're not going to be allowed burning up to that practice. So, so many. How do you have those conversations when you're trying to work through it yourself? So it's not to be underestimated because it's also about it's not my dog has never hurt anyone before. We hear that all the time. Mm. Yeah. That's not risk mitigation. Yeah. (laughs) But that's what we hear. That's what people think. Oh, well, my dog is amazing. They've never hurt anyone before. Yeah. Or more recently, they've they've never hurt anyone before, but they've growled at somebody or they've done this to somebody. And you're like, okay, well, do you actually know what that means? And are we navigating that? So there's so many more considerations. And I think that's what Therapy Dogs Australia do really well is we're not afraid to have those conversations and we want people to bring those conversations to us so that we yeah. can help you navigate them um, and we can prepare for the best outcomes for our dogs, for ourselves as professionals and, and service um, providers, um, but also, and, and so importantly, for our participants. That's what it's all for. So really yeah. important that we're navigating that and, and breaking it down even to the point of perception, not just what if the risk actually happens. Yeah, exactly. If do you guys have some examples, whether in your own professional journey or you know stories that you've heard that we can like chat about, just as examples of risk management? Because I feel like that would be. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, I do want to talk about specific stuff because I want people to come away from the podcast with like a bit of a plan. Mm. So. Um, I've just written in my little list here. So people that you'll be answering to clients, your insurance company, APRA and um, whoever you're registered with, that sort of thing. Um, Office of Fair Trade is another one. Um, They contacted me once. Someone made a complaint about something on the website or something. I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't. All of these I've gotten out of them because I actually didn't do anything wrong. Um, But yeah, so Office of Fair Trade, uh, it's something about you just got to make sure like so that there's rules so what the point the point is there's rules so if you're um advertising a service you have to provide that service that's an office of fair trade thing so there's consumer laws and things like that as well so if you're I don't care what industry you're in if you're charging people for a service um, and there's probably even rules around um, volunteer stuff too, because there's lots of rules around volunteer stuff, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know what they are. So you've got to look into these sorts of things like, you know, okay, so I've advertised, so let's say I'm a disability support worker and I've advertised animal assisted therapy options. Um, and then I've rocked up and I've met this participant and I've decided, no, they're too um, difficult to handle while I'm also handling my dog that i you know, have or have not trained correctly or whatever. If you then go, oh, no, I'm not bringing the dog. Well, essentially you've advertised a service and then, I mean, it might be a bit of a long stretch or not, I don't know, but then due to that person's disability, you're not offering that service to them. That's discrimination. Now we're in trouble. So if we start looking at these things, like you, there are risks involved in this business. There's risks involved in every business. There's risks involved in everything. So those kinds of things, if they, that 
participant or their representative was then to go. So let's say you've signed your um through NDIA and you've um taken a chunk of their funding for support work because they've chosen your service because you've got animal assisted therapy written all over your website. Then you rock up and you go, oh, this person's disability is not consistent with what I can offer for animal assisted therapy. I'm just not going to do it. Oh, okay. Well, they've you've got their funding. So now you're in trouble because now this participant's got to go through X, Y, Z, find another support worker, blah, 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 blah. But if they want to report you, that's an office of fair trade situation where you're going to go, well, they've advertised a thing to me or discrimination. So are they going to litigate against you privately as well? Because, well, you've actually discriminated against me because you've sold me this service or idea of a service, but now you're not offering it to me. So what's going on here? So that's an example of how you could um, find yourself in some pretty hot water. To mitigate that risk, for example, um, don't say that you offer animal assisted therapy to everybody. <laughs> don't put that on your website. Put on there that um, you are a support worker, you're a disability support worker, um, and there are animal assisted services available to approved participants. So things like that and do do an intake with people and, you know, find out like we, even at PAW, so PAW's our psychology clinic where uh, we're animal assisted, when we have non-dog days because we've got dogs not working full time. And sometimes the clients are like furious. <laughs> They're like, but you're a therapy dog place. And we're like, yeah, we have, yeah, we do animal assisted therapy here. Like that's what we do here. But but we're a psychologist and we do psychology and at times that's assisted by the animal. So one of the ways to keep ourselves out of trouble with that um, is our fees. We keep our fees standard. We don't charge additional fees for animal assisted therapy. That's a personal choice that everybody can make for themselves. Um, but I don't charge you to have these dogs or horses here. And it costs me a flipping fortune. Um, I'm certainly not making money out of it. Uh, it's costing money. So considering that we I can offer I can provide the same service for the same fee without any of these animals that are eating me out of house and home so if that's not it's only ever going to eat into our bottom line so um we just make sure we make it really clear so in our welcoming documents our consent forms you know all that booking information things like that um it says in there that you know this is an animal assisted therapy practice um, so there may be therapy animals present. We get people to consent to that. There may be animals present for your session. However, if that animal cannot be present, your session will go ahead as planned. So this is an additional offering. It's not the baseline service. So at the end of the day, that's great if there are dogs here. Like I've had situations before. Oh, my old dog, Isabel, pushed Oliver through the pool fence. She was running past. They were both running down the side of the fence and she like pushed him because she was a savage. <laughs> She's passed away now. She got cancer. That's her. Aww. That's that's her in the background. You know. Hi, Isabel. Um, she was pretty funny. We used to call her Sharky for any of our old students that, that did face-to-face -face courses with us. Call her Sharky because she'd just like cruise. She had a brain injury. She'd just cruise around the room like getting pats from everyone like a shark. <laughs> sniffing people's dogs like she was real like hello <laughs> anyway she pushed Oliver into a flipping fence so he snapped his leg snapped his tibia in half as I'm walking to my car with my other dog to go to work they like ran they like ran down the fence to be like man I'm fine 
and she pushes him and he snaps his leg in the fence and I'm like great <laughs> he's screaming I'm like oh my goodness swap dogs just grabbed him picked him up chucked him in the car took him straight down to the surgery <laughs> it's like he's just broken his leg um so I didn't I dropped him off um then he had surgery and they plated his leg up and whatever and blah 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 and um I went to work without a dog you know what I mean like I just dropped him off and then I picked him up on the way home <laughs> I had no dog I'm not going to cancel a day of clients or I'm not going to drive back home and get my other original dog you know like things happen and you know I've got no dog here so or it might be they might be just life stuff and things like that but to get yourself out of um we 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 talk about this stuff more in the course about logistics and the best way to go about that kind of thing like I let my clients know and stuff like that kids got autism so it's better if they don't just rock up and there's no dog there you know (laughs) it's probably also great because it kind of doesn't um teach any sort of dependency Hmm. on needing the animal there to yeah. to work to work on whatever goal you're working on yeah mm. yeah but it is a risk so if we're not clearly communicating that sort of stuff to our clients then they could get upset and they may report you to all sorts of bodies they might do they might report you to all sorts of stuff and I think um, it's these considerations that aren't obvious and when we're setting up a practice hmm. we've got to think about the policies and procedures and really navigating a, um, careful planning what are you offering? How are you offering it? Who are your funding bodies? And mm. does what you're offering fit with the funding body expectations? And if we can go back to, well, our core business is our professional offering and we're adding animal-assisted therapy to complement what we're doing so we can always do our core business, but the animals are assisting us to deliver our core business. Yeah. But that comes in our explanation and our really clear communication and what to expect. And yeah. you can't just wake up one morning and acquire that knowledge. You really have to sit down and do careful planning and navigating and practices that have multiple dogs, practices that have, or different animals and all, all sorts, everything is such individualized planning, isn't it? It's not just, okay, come <laughs> this is what we're all doing we're all doing it exactly the same our dogs are different our animals are different so what we offer is always different which means quite unique and individualized planning it does and it's but it's not it's not hard to um like customize it you know like even just this conversation that we're having right now all you need to do is change some of the wording in some of your documents yeah. You know, it's all you need to do and everything's going to be fine. So you don't, don't put your head in the sand over this one. It's like, I'm telling you how to ensure your shed. Okay. It costs this, like, it's really simple stuff. Like just make sure that you're not advertising <clears throat> animal assisted da 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 for everyone. There are, there will be clients that aren't going to be suitable. There will be days and you're not going to have an animal there. There will be situations yeah. where, you, where it's not going to work. What if your dog dies? What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you've told everybody that this is an animal assisted math tutoring place and then your dog dies? You're just going to go and steal your neighbor's dog. This is the same dog. (laughs) It's not called the same name. (laughs) I think there's an assumption too. I'd quit my job if that happens. Just that's, it's all over. No dog, never working again. Yeah. Um, But I obviously have to have six months grief leave. Absolutely. Um, But just because you can purchase an insurance policy doesn't mean you're protected by that insurance policy. I think that's a really important 
message as well. So you can go and get coverage. You can say, this is what I'm doing. Cover me. Mm. A lot of them don't ask questions. I've seen some insurance companies that are incredible at what evidence they want to see. They want to see that you've engaged with professional training um, and a trainer, but not a lot of them are. They want to see a risk assessment, which is amazing if if your insurance company is asking for that. But a lot of them will ask for that after the incidents happen right yeah yeah now now Mm. we're going to invest our time in admin because it's a business decision in a lot of instances we don't want to invest all of our time in admin going through that you've got the resources you need we assume you've got them it's in our policy that you've got everything ready to go um and now that something's happened i want to see where's your risk mitigation where's your you know, client communication, where's your informed consent or whatever they're they're chasing. And that's when you become quite um, unprotected by the insurance policy that you purchased thinking it was going to be useful. They still sold me home insurance. I've got home insurance. You know what I mean? Like they still sold me the home insurance. That shed's not insured. Like, because I couldn't list it. Like they, and it wasn't even this insurance company that I spoke to. Um, I don't know what, I think I got, I was using a broker. That's right. I was trying to get a broker. That's right. Cause they won't let me do run certain businesses here. And I was trying to change it. Um, and yeah, I was speaking to a broker and it was his flipping whole thing and blah, blah, blah. And so I couldn't, I just didn't end up buying a new policy, but this, it made it very clear to me that this policy that I've got right now on this house isn't covering that shit because it yeah. was such a big drama to get it on a new thing do you know what I mean like but they didn't tell me that when I bought this insurance like they didn't ask all those questions you're, I aware know. Of that? Huh? you're aware of that so you know that it's not going to be useful when you claim for the share there's a lot of people that yeah. are buying I know that now but I yeah. only know that because I tried to get another insurance policy that's yeah. the only way I found that out I actually also just found out that I don't have contents insurance I just bought contents insurance like two months ago I don't know how that happened well how did that happen I don't know I can't remember why I did that, how I found that out. But anyway. If you're a broker, please reach out to Sam. Please help me. Someone help me, okay? Does anyone know any broker podcasts I could listen to and I could get some free information (laughs) from, please? Okay, because I'll listen to it on my way to work and then I'll know what to do. I can't remember what happened. I think someone, something asked me about, oh, no, I tried to put my tractor on my contents insurance. (laughs) They were like, you don't have contents insurance. And I was like, (laughs) so we don't insure tractors. (laughs) And I was like, how has this happened? <laughs> anyway, so the point is, um, you don't know. Like, it's not it's not clear. No one reads all that stuff that they send you with all those forms and everything. Like, I don't, I'm not going to read like 25 fine print forms. I don't know what's going on here. I need to talk to someone and then have them do the, do the things that I need them to do. But anyway, that didn't happen. So it's a learning experience for everybody. Uh, check your home insurance, I guess, for starters. Um <laughs> let's check it I guess um you know and um regarding your animal assisted therapy insurance stuff check it check it like uh one of my um clinicians didn't realize you have to tell our insurer every year that um that you do animal assisted therapy so when you renew your insurance they don't just renew the animal assisted therapy part you have to actually contact them and say you know, I just email them because I've got thousands of emails from them. But um, yeah, so 
you actually need to notify them every year. So he sent me an email the other day going, oh my goodness, just so you know, you have to tell them every year. And I was like, no, I know that. I obviously forgot to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) So these are the types of things we should probably be writing in our policies and procedures, I guess, like, you know, little checklists and, and, you know, stuff like that so that we can remember these things. Actually, as you're saying that, Amy, um, about the insurance company, I was like, yeah, because this insurance company has been asking more questions every year. So every year I, when I tell them like, yep, can you add my animal therapy and equine therapy on again, please? Um, they come back with more questions. So right. yeah. And, but as you were saying though, I just thought, oh, I wonder if someone got sued. Um, I wonder if that's reactive. I wonder I'm if sure it would be, happened. but it's still not something that all insurance companies are doing that's what I mean like I wonder if our insurance company I wonder if they've had something happen and they've actually had to investigate and they've realized like oh so this is probably important you know because they never so it's been 10 years um 10 or 11 years that I've been had animal assisted therapy on my insurance I would say it's been in the last four to five years that they've asked anything uh and certainly I just renewed my insurance um in December, November, and more questions, more questions. I have no doubt that there is complaints and litigation happening all the time because of the stories we hear, because of the situations that are happening all the time. It's not not uncommon with the number of puppies and the number of um, um. professionals working with their animals that haven't done any training so yeah it would not surprise me if that's the case but I think there's greater awareness we Mm. can't put our head in the sand when there's more and more information available it's not like Mm. you can't find a training provider anymore it's not like things aren't accessible and when we chose to move to online and I know that was um, in response to COVID it's also supported accessibility for our rural yeah. remote teams exactly. um, all over Australia. So when they're yeah. searching and saying, I can't find a training provider, it's very easy to say, actually, there are training providers and it's it's more comfortable for the dogs to be at home yes. during the day while you're doing the training. It's not lugging your dog to, you know, off to training to do that um, in a stressful environment. So there's been yeah. some amazing improvements around what's available. So the excuse of, well, I just couldn't find a provider isn't enough anymore. And I wonder if insurance companies are becoming more informed themselves, mm-hmm. whether that be through responding to incidents or the more um, accessible information in the space, which it's great to see some of them taking some responsibility to help best prepare our professionals from working. I think it's great. We should probably try and speak with them. I think it's great because imagine you haven't done any training or anything and you're like, yeah, I want to put animal assisted therapy on my insurance. And they're like, cool, what training have you done? And you're like, hmm. Maybe I should do some training. But like what would they I think it's great. What are they trained to accept as well? Like what do they believe is acceptable training? Because, again, it's an unregulated industry. People mm. need to make an informed decision and they need to yeah. accept options. But people also don't know what they're looking for, which, yeah. is, which is really mm. tricky. So how are insurance companies knowing what to look for? Maybe, they, maybe they are responding like yeah. you said, Sam, mm. to an incident or something and it's wising them up. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. It is great, but it's a good question. And also, you know, because the standard, like 
there are courses around that train only the dog and there are courses around that train only the handler. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you combine them, then you, you said, but um, yeah, I don't know that the insurance company knows that too. Like sometimes people have done like just like a theory course, um, you know, and then they've just got a dog. Or sometimes people, like people come to us and they're like, just want us to assess the dog. And I'm like, but I have to make sure that you, yeah, you, you, you've been trained. Like that's, it's, but I, but it's because there are companies who are just assessing dogs, but yeah. animal assisted therapy isn't just a nice dog. It's a, yeah. it's a handler and a dog that have been trained to work together to provide something meaningful. It's not just cruising around with it, which I understand why some companies don't know that because they're not therapists. They're not doing animal assisted therapy. They just doing yeah. I don't know nursing home visits or whatever but even then when you are doing that it's still we still want to give you all of that training in the ethics and the welfare and all that sort of stuff and I think that's what I'm most proud about um being affiliated with Therapy Dogs Australia because I get the luxury of reading the feedback forms and we take that really seriously at the end mm. of each course and we encourage honest feedback. We want to know what you didn't like, what you liked, et cetera. And one of our questions is about how prepared do you feel in delivering animal-assisted therapy or services um, to your target group? And overwhelmingly, it's the sense of preparedness. It's the sense of confidence that is coming out of the course that I think that's one of your best protections. I know what to do when things go wrong. I know what to do when um, I, I'm identifying a new risk or things are escalating in session. I know how to handle my dog no matter what happens. So we're not just preparing preparing yeah. you for five key things or how to run this session. It's not that rich. Yeah. It's about, you know what to do no matter what. Yeah. And that's what I love most about the formula yeah. and being able to prepare people for practice yeah. um, because of that confidence. And that's what's going to get you out of trouble. When I, um, so that was very on purpose when I developed the course, because the course that I had done, um, people were coming out of it, not prepared. And not, and they weren't working with their dogs and they weren't going and doing things because they felt unprepared. And I hated that. Like I was like, that sucks. So we teach the way we teach things. It's about understanding these concepts so that you can generalize them. So it's the generalizability of the information so that you can use these concepts in your, in your context now and into the future, because you really truly understand it. Um, and that's why we have the learning resources that we've got. That's why we've got our final assignment and things like that. It's not so that we can fail you because we think you're an idiot. You don't get it. It's so that we can identify gaps in learning so that we can make sure that after this course, did you learn what we were teaching um, or did we miss something or have we, you know, has there been a miscommunication, misinterpretation or whatever, or just we haven't fully um, processed that idea or whatever. We go through that so that we can, um, identify those gaps and then we get back in touch with you and go, so this is, you know, this part here or this concept here, this is what that is, you know, and we can go back and make sure that people do understand. And then yeah. on top of it, we've got our group supervision and professional Absolutely. development workshops and, yeah. you know, you can even come back for individual tutoring and then got reassessments and yeah, yeah to try and make people feel as safe 
as possible. Well, it's an ongoing journey, isn't it? Mm. You don't just train in something and then you're set to go. Mm. You're constantly getting better and better about what you do and trying new things and working in different settings and that brings new challenges. So it's definitely lifelong yep. <laughs> learning um, and addictive because we end up working with not not we, but many, many end up working with new dogs and different dogs as mm. um, as they transition through. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that brings new challenges and new new learning opportunities. So it's very exciting. I think having somewhere you can affiliate with and reach out to and have that ongoing network. I love that our teams can also, they don't have to come to us. They have their networks that they can reach out to each other. Yeah, um, that's the cool thing about the groups. Yeah, which is really lovely. So if I'm thinking about risk, risk management, risk mitigation, so we've talked a bit about, you know, who are you responsible to? So your client, your insurance companies, whatever, blah, blah, blah. One of the things that I think we need to remember is um, like private litigation. So, um, you know, if your dog bites someone uh, and they need a surgery or they need plastic surgery or they're traumatized it is very traumatic being attacked by a dog um so you know they might need therapy or things like that if your insurance company is not interested in you and your situation uh then the you potentially if someone's trying to sue you because for damages that can be very expensive um and so you need to make sure that you are appropriately insured so that you're not paying for that um, because we also do need to make sure that the client gets those things. We need to make sure that they are compensated and you don't just declare bankruptcy and they don't get their surgery. Do you know what I mean? Like if your dog bites someone, you need to pay for them, for that. you need to compensate them. Um, but just being aware, like that's going to come out of your pocket or you're going to have to de- declare bankruptcy and the, the person's not going to get what they need. Um, or I don't even know if that's possible to do that. I don't know. But um. Yeah, just making sure that you've got insurance. So we have insurance, um, animal assisted therapy insurance. <clears throat> we have pet insurance policies as well, and they've got third party on them. Um, and that's to cover, it does cover, um, yeah, damages to like people and property from your dog. I think like if your dog like runs out and gets hit by a car and causes a car accident, like I think you're responsible for that. Um, and like you might have to pay for the car. Interestingly, some of the pet insurance policies when I was exploring, and I'm not claiming to give financial advice um, in any way, everyone needs to do their own due diligence around selecting appropriate policies. Certainly don't take insurance advice from me as well, obviously. Listen to the mistakes and go and get your own advice. Um, But when it comes to pet insurance, some of them have a exclusion. Sam may not have read this because it's in the fine print, but there is an exclusion (laughs) around working dogs and they don't provide a definition of what working dogs are. However, they have said that assistance dogs don't fit that category. So assistance dogs can be um, included in the policy without issue. But working dogs... I think this is a really loose um, definition and I would consider in, you know, in a lot of the ways that we're talking about working with dogs, that therapy dogs are working dogs. They're a complex yeah. professional service delivery. 
have asked various insurance policies um, directly to put in writing. They've said over the phone that doesn't include therapy dogs. We consider them the same as assistance dogs. However, I have never received it in writing. So I've never chosen to go with a provider that has that listed because I just feel too vulnerable if something were to go wrong that that would be a Mm. of paying the the policy claim. My policy does say that. Um, but they told me also over the phone that working dogs were farm dogs and security dogs, yeah. <clears throat> police dogs. And I was like, why does this, why don't you just say that then in the yeah. policy? Like yeah, why do you in brackets. working? Yeah. Like why, why? But anyway, it's, it's something to be aware of definitely. But I did have that conversation with them too. So, but that was years ago. There are policies <clears throat> that don't have it. Um, which is good. So I think it's worth, yeah, see how everyone feels and be aware of that potential. Mine auto renew um, and I like never look at them. So I should probably look at them and see what it says. Now, if you're an insurance broker and have an interest in animal assisted services, if you could reach out, we would love to hear from you. We have so much business for you. If you're an insurance (laughs) broker, people ask us this stuff all the time. And it is largely the blind leading the blind (laughs) because we know what we know, um, but we certainly don't know like enough. So, but we're having these conversations to just let other people know, like we need to start asking questions. Like you need to do your own research because we're not brokers. We don't know. Um, But uh, yeah, if you are a broker, get in touch with me, please. So um, we got getting sued, blah, blah, blah. I think... So when I had to answer to, I actually didn't do anything wrong when I um, got those complaints, but um, I, when I answered to them, it didn't go as far as me having to say like, what, like what, when you get in trouble. So what, one of the things that they consider is what have you done to either make this not happen, make it less bad or rectify it. And I think one of the things from memory because they did come back to me with a response oh this must this might have actually been the health ombudsman anyway someone because I did I entered mediation um following because they the health ombudsman was like so you're not at fault and you don't have to do anything um but you know one of the things that that person requested was like they had this list of demands um and so I entered mediation to try and you know help them work through some of that but the mediator was like, this is a waste of your time. Like they were oh, so no. off this other person. They were like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, this was ridiculous. Like it was this massive list of like punitive stuff to me and also like stuff to her. But the complaint had already been like, well, so this is, there's no grounds, you know, like. <laughs> anyway, um, the things, one of the things that they consider is um like what have you done to rectify that? So, for example, um, if your dog, if you're working at a clinic, okay, here's a, something to I miss a risk thing. Um, I used to work at Headspace and in an um in Anala, and uh, they have electric doors. What are they called? Automatic doors, sensor doors. They go whoosh, open. Um, and so if I had the dog in the weight room. Someone would, so, and it was outside a shopping center, like it was on Anala Plaza or whatever. So people would just walk past the doors and like not come in or go out and they, the doors would be opening. And so I'd have the dog just like doing his job in the waiting room, like, you know, hanging out with people and stuff like that. And then next second, the door would be open, like right there. 
So I had to boundary train him on the door and then never have him unsupervised, which you shouldn't do anyway. But this was like my day one of being animal assisted therapy, being a part of what I was doing. Um, but even back then I was like, just, we, I just, I was lucky actually, because I um, was in a situation where I just couldn't leave him unsupervised because the doors were open. So um, anyway, I can't remember what I, was what I was talking about. Oh, if your dog wanders out and scares someone who's dog phobic, let's say, lots of people are, they're at a shopping centre, they're not expecting to see a dog. Um, he's a big dog, big yellow Labrador, but you might have a dog that even might look more scary. So um, at, at Paul, we've got a, a Rottweiler across Labrador. He's a big bullfed. Um, but let's say, you know, you've got a dog and it, it wanders out of the clinic or whatever and it spooks someone and scares them and they either you know they have a phobe have some kind of phobic response phobia response or they get startled and they fall over and they hurt themselves so if that was say something like that was to happen and then obviously you know a complaint comes about whatever blah 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 if you're still running that joint with those bloody doors, with that dog in that situation, they will look at that. Like, they'll be like, so what do you do now? Like, so you've got to be able to go, well, we actually put um, playpen doors, baby gates on all the internal offices and da-da-da. And we actually made this like, or we, we sectioned that off or we changed the door or whatever. So it actually can't happen again. They do look at that stuff. So yeah. um best bet is to do those things before the bad thing happens so that's what we're talking about when we say risk mitigation so um you know don't wait for the dog to wander out the doors because you you know yes they're supervised all the time until that moment when they're not there they've slipped off or what you know whatever i don't know what yeah things happen you know so we need to be preparing for these types of risks uh, look ahead into the future and go like, what could go wrong here? I think I've talked about it on another podcast or I could have talked about it in maybe that adolescence program. Um, but I think I talked about it recently. Our doors at Poor are glass in our waiting room and they open up. It's a very annoying little design. It's very annoying. Anyway, they open the door, but the steps go up. So we're on a land, we're on level one. So the steps go right up to where the door is. Um, and it opens right here. So um, I wanted to frost the doors because it's there's no privacy for people in the waiting room because there's toilets up there. So people from the arcade going up past the toilet and stuff. And it's a psychology clinic. Like I wanted to frost it. Um, but I figured out because my neighbors frosted their door and I was like, that is it from Bunnings. And I was like, I want to frost my door. Anyway, I didn't do it because I realized sometimes, even though all the communication that we give out to people that there are flipping dogs here, there's dogs on every single sign, there's dogs in the emails, there's dogs talked about on the phone. The place is called Psychology and Animal System Wellbeing. It's called Paul. Like we cannot, there's no way we can possibly make it more obvious that there's dogs here. But sometimes people open the door and they get, like, oh, because the dogs run down the hallway or whatever. So I didn't frost the doors because I thought it was safer for people to see the dogs on the other side of the door mm. than to have the frosting there, open the door and then fall down the flipping stairs because they've gotten a startle because there's two dogs running down that like we've got, we've all got dogs. So there's, you know, three, four dogs there at any given time. 
um, and they're friends. So they play, so they run around the hallways and stuff. So, you know, like, so that for me was like a risk assessment and mitigation thing, even though I really wanted frosted doors and I think it would be better for the clients who had frosted doors. I was like, well, I'm not sending someone down this flopping flopping set of stairs. I was going to swap the doors around um, so it opens the other way, but then that's where our seating is. So I couldn't really do that because when they have no, it's a very, it's a very small, we're only a little clinic. Well, it's not that little. I just made huge therapy dog rooms, <laughs> three massive therapy dog rooms upstairs and another massive one downstairs, but it meant that we sacrificed the waiting room area. Whoops. <laughs> so, uh, that's an example of like, you know, okay. So think ahead, like uh, people may get a bit of a fright from this sort of stuff how are you going to manage that so that it's not the case because the kids love um the dogs we actually need our dogs in the waiting room so that could have been another way that you could have managed that is not have the dogs ever in the waiting room but the kids love it they love it like they bring their friends from school to come and wait for them in their appointment because they want to show them the dogs like they just love it and a lot of the time um, not so much from my diary now because I've had my clients for ages, but um, certainly much more in the earlier days. That was how I got the kids to come into the room was b- yeah. by bringing the dog out, reducing the anxiety in the waiting room, building a little bit of relationship in the waiting room, and then they follow the dog into the room. Um, so uh, like, oh man, I'm having flashbacks. It's years ago now, but um, I remember having kids that wouldn't come in, they wouldn't come in like, and so, you know, we'd sit out in the waiting room and, you know, things like that. And just, re- I'd have to spend a heap of time out there to get them to feel comfortable enough to come into the room. Oh man, times have changed. So I haven't had yeah. a new client in like, we'd be going on three years, I reckon, since I've had a new client. Oh, that's nice. my diary. That's so full. <laughs> <laughs> I took on some of Amy, old Amy's, um, clients the beginning of last year so it gave me a little refresher um but I knew them all like they've been in practice for years oh that's lovely so yeah I'm really um having a little moment at the moment thinking oh man my job used to be a lot harder (laughs) and I think um when we think about risk mitigation or risk planning and we put so much informed consideration and how to set up spaces and how Mm -hmm. it's going to work and not work I think you have to review that all the time as well because just as you were talking about the situation with the door um, in my school environment I've got a very similar setup and my um, anyone that works in schools sometimes offices change like Mm. all the time like new building projects I get kicked out of my office all the time Um, and then all of a sudden I have to rethink how is this going to work yeah assisted therapy um, and how am I going to make sure all students feel safe so we've got cultural um, differences we've got um, fears and phobias we've got allergies we've got all sorts of things to consider and every student needs to have the same right to access service and support absolutely and I was thinking about like a really unpredictable situation that happened again it was about a doorway we've got glass entrances to our space which works beautifully because they can see if the dog's there um, and um, my guy Wilbur loves to sit in the air con lie out on um, the timber floor and look out and normally that's fine because I can hear the door opening my desk is just around the corner. I can spring up. I can bring the dog in. I can invite people in as that happens. Yep. And that's worked really beautifully. Until this one day where beautiful tuck shop lady used to deliver our lunches um, for mm-hmm. myself and my colleague had the most amazing service ever. 
And she came over and we didn't realize she was coming, carrying our lunches. She's come up to this glass door and she can't open it because her hands are full of food. So she started kicking this glass door to get our attention, but didn't realize how heavy she's kicking this door. So my dog is behind this glass door. She can see that. And his first response is, I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. So my therapy dog bounds up and has the biggest bark I've ever heard in his life at this top lady at this door. So I've sprung out of my chair thinking, who just died? My dog's just mauled someone, which is not what we're trained to be doing. The door hasn't even opened because she can't open the door. She's just kicking it really loud and will be responding. And I'm like, okay, so if we had a student in the practice at the time, if we had anyone nearby, if that was a student kicking at the door, the implication for that student, the fear that it would cause, obviously I'm very worried about the tuck shop lady. She's great. She's got a great relationship with Wilbur, so it's fine. <laughs> I've navigated that. But I never, ever thought someone would come up and kick the door. <laughs> and then that was a new thing that mm. I then have to think about in terms of risk mitigation and making it safe for everyone and not causing, I do not want to be the cause of trauma. <laughs> my participants, all my tuck shop lady, amazing because she brings us Absolutely. food. Absolutely. So keep sweet. that relationship strong. Yeah, yeah. So she keeps bringing us food. Exactly. Um, so what sort of I'm things did you implement, awesome. Amy, just out of um, interest? Well, she knows not to kick the door. <laughs> Education that's happened. Wilbur Will, Will, taught her that one. <laughs> learned, but that's not great. Um, and we've got the signage, and I'm just more acutely aware. I'm not going to change the door. I'm not going to change the glass because that works really well to reduce other risks. Um, yeah. So even though I haven't had to do a huge amount, but be incredibly aware that that is a trauma risk. Mm-hmm. And no, it's not a common risk that's likely to replicate. So it's being really aware and helping that um, the tuck shop lady understand why that happened and that that wasn't a normal reaction that she's going to get when she comes and and things like that. So um, I think it's very much about unpacking that because I don't want her to be traumatised. If that was a child, Mm, it's be higher. Um, So really mindful that we're aware of that. But things happen, right? Things are happening all the time. Yeah, I think from each other around their experience. A big one from that, Amy, that people might not have realised is that you should unpack that. Like, whereas if someone, the delivery person comes to my house, my dog's bark, I'm like, whatever. Like, I don't even tell them to shut up. Like, you know, I'm like, whatever. But when you're working in a therapy dog setting and the dog barks at someone, it's about understanding that the human-animal bond that's developed or should be developed, facilitated by you and your dog, um, with the people that have got access to them. So it's different. It's different yeah. to if your dog barks at someone. Like if my friends arrive you know, and the dog barks, I'm not like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, Listen, he just got started. Like it's, we don't need to do that at home. So they might not have crossed people's minds that when your dog barks at someone in its work role, you actually do need to address that, unpack it, explain it, rebuild the relationship, spend time with the person and the dog, rebuilding that relationship and things like that. That's also important from a dog training perspective because we don't need the 
the dog, then bark at everyone at the door because uh, that's a flipping nightmare. If your dog's barking, we don't let our dogs bark at work at all. So we then doesn't matter. And it's the first thing we teach new dogs to the clinic um, is not to bark at that doorway because they don't understand that it's not like your house. Um, so now we got all our dogs, like they don't bark at the doorway because they've never been allowed to bark at the door. Otherwise they bark when people arrive and it is the worst. It's it's horrendous for human-animal bond. It's very rupturing, very, very rupturing. So it's one of the first things we deal with. Yeah. yeah. So which is a great segue into, you know, not all risk is about um, dogs biting or whatever and that sort of stuff. Some of the risks that you're trying to um, mitigate, and we talk about this heaps in the courses, so sorry to everyone that's already done the courses, but it's about human-animal bond. So making sure that we are protecting the welfare of the people that we're working with so that we are facilitating human-animal bond and we are respecting that bond, not rupturing it, um, not causing, you know, attachment-related traumas and stuff like that from the things that our dogs are doing in their work role. The point of the dog being there is that it's they're building a relationship. They're, they're, they're a relationship builder. If you're building relationships, you've got more responsibility. You've got responsibility within every relationship you have in your life. So you need to be aware that, okay, well, you've now just built more and strengthened further existing relationships by bringing this dog into this work role. You're responsible for those relationships, not the yeah. dog. You're responsible for maintaining those. You're responsible for those relationships being safe, safe places for people to be because you've made them vulnerable by tricking them into hanging around you because you've got a bloody dog. All their cortisols come down, their oxytocin's moving around. With all these beautiful benefits that happen from having therapy dogs. And then the dog is attached to you. So you now <laughs> made this person more vulnerable to you. Anyone that's taking a dog into a workplace now will know exactly what I'm talking about. People that you, you know, people will be hanging around you, people that you may not have connected with before, people that you wouldn't think would be, you know, the type of person that you would connect with. And I bet I'll comment on now, comment on something, get in touch with me because this, I bet you are seeing people behave differently around the dog to what they behave the rest of the time you see them, particularly at work. Okay, so they're coming in, they're talking baby dog talk to your dog, they're getting down on the floor, they're playing little games, they're saying things like, oh, you don't want to say hello to me today. Oh, you don't want to, you don't want to play with me. They're saying stuff like that, like they're people are becoming vulnerable, all these things. There's so much responsibility that comes with that. You can't just blindly just let the dog handle that you know that's not how that works like, well that's not the best practice way of making that work within that vulnerability in those relationships people are at risk they are at risk of being hurt they're at risk of being um, rejected they're at risk of you know uh, increased feelings of worthlessness and you know things like that if they've placed an, an importance on this relationship with this dog well, they wanted the relationship with the dog and then they have to hang around with you and you might be a bit shitty on that day because you forgot your lunch or whatever or, you know, that kind of thing. You really do have to be careful um, in those relationships too. And that's um, why Amy's talking about, well, we've unpacked that with the lunch lady and made sure that, that she's been able to maintain her relationship with Wilbur, which is really probably the reason that Amy was getting her lunch brought to her was so that the lunch lady could see Wilbur. So 
And my colleague needed a debrief too. And she is so familiar with the dog, but understanding what happened, why it happened and navigating all of that so that we can understand Wilbur's behavior and also help Wilbur to feel more supported mm. and safe. So many, so many implications from that. Um, Absolutely. So make sure that you're aware of those risks too, guys. Like those are the ones you're probably not going to get in trouble for because no one else is probably going to realize what's going on, what kind of damage you're doing to people's relationships accidentally. Um, but it is definitely a risk and it is something to be aware of. We definitely take it very seriously at Poor and everything we do through Therapy Dogs Australia, we take that vulnerability risk really seriously because we care about vulnerable people. That's our job. That's our life is caring about vulnerable people. Um, the other thing is... Um, yeah, so making sure that you're taking steps, whether you've done up a formal risk assessment or not, um, just make open your eyes, look around, um, make sure that you've had a look at things like doorways, uh, what you're doing about, you know, clients, letting them know that there's a dog there, uh, making sure you're not discriminating against people, make sure that the dog's safe, you know your dog's welfare, you need to learn canine body language. Um, to make sure that you're managing your dog's welfare as well. Your dog is at risk as well. Um, so we want to make sure. So one of the things that we do um, is initial appointments without dogs um, because we need to make sure that we're in a position where this client is going to be a, the right fit for this dog, uh, things like that. We want to make sure. Um, so some people work in much more difficult settings than what we do. Uh, and that might include things like the um, acute care teams in hospitals, uh, people in dementia wards, things like that, where uh, your clientele are a lot less predictable um, and maybe more volatile and things like that. So your dog is at risk. So one of your risk mitigation strategies may be that you don't go and meet someone for the first time with the dog because it's potentially not safe for your dog to do that so uh those kinds of things um and then making sure that we're communicating that quite clearly so you know we haven't got you know residents coming into this specific dementia ward to you know live here and they've got all their funding here and all that sort of stuff because you advertise that you've got a dog and then you go like well no this person's too volatile for this dog like that's it's not a good fit um and then their family's left going so why did we put Nan in that facility? Were they chose it because of the dog? Because she had to give her dog away because she got dementia or whatever. Some it'll be some thing, um, and very valid, very very valid situation. Uh, and then you know all of a sudden there's no dog there because you know Nan's a little bit familiar. I don't I can't remember when I said this, but we we're in a nursing home. And one of the residents um, was like, used to be a dog trainer or something. I don't know. She's like a dog person. Um, and she fully grabbed other Amy's golden retriever and was like, oh, train this dog. Fully grabbed it real, real rough with the dog. We were like, oh, <laughs> and she oh, had dementia. Yeah. So, and she was big. Like she, you know, like she was, she was huge. She wasn't like this dainty little old lady. She was like, she was still pretty young, you know, Um yeah, and I was like, we're in a situation right now. <laughs> I actually had to take the stuff off the dog, <laughs> unclip the stuff I mean, off the dog. Yeah. yeah. 
but no, you, you had a response <laughs> and you knew the dog was going, you could manage the dog. That's right. With verbal commands. And so we're always exactly. prepared to respond yep. to these different situations. I think the other big thing um, and what you're also referring to is by seeing clients and, and participants before introducing the dog, you've also got an opportunity to help explain well, what are the, the benefits of having animal assisted therapy and why we might do that. But what are the risks? Because they need to make an informed decision themselves yes. yeah. and be aware of it. You can't just simply mm. assume we know what a dog is. Oh, you've got a pet dog. Oh, cool. So you already know about all of those risks. We actually have to explain what they are yeah. and, yeah. that. and they make an informed decision themselves. So not yeah. only as practitioners are we making decisions about good fit and appropriateness, but they also need to make a decision if that's if they would like to participate and increase the risk mm. to themselves as well. If, as soon as you're yeah. involved with working with an animal, your risk increase, you know, risk of injury and 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 harm increases. So we're choosing to do that to participants and participants have to make that choice themselves and we have to help facilitate that. So so many considerations around it. If you're not doing informed consent, just bear with me, okay? This is going to be stressful. Take a deep breath. If you are not getting informed consent for animal-assisted therapy, stop what you're doing right now and go and add it to your consent forms. It will take you five minutes. If you get stuck, send me an email. We will help you. If you've done your training, and this is what we're just going to help cowboys out there, just put stuff on their consent forms because you shouldn't be doing animal-assisted therapy if you haven't had any training. But anyway, contact us if you need help. We actually have documents that we sell. We actually have got this stuff and we can formally help you. But even you just need a little bit Once of advice. Once you've studied with us. As well. Once you've studied with us. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We've got all this stuff. We've got this stuff for people. Um, you know, so band-aids, short-term band-aids. Absolutely. Yeah, because we can't just do training yeah. overnight. But that's right. But we're help, happy to help you access the support, but you absolutely need to. Yeah. Contact me, whether you're one of our students or not, just send me an email, sam at therapydog.com.au. Okay. If you're having a little bit of a moment right now because you're driving along to work with your dog in the car and you haven't got informed consent for anything that you're doing and you haven't had any training and you're freaking out. Everything's fine. <laughs> Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Get in touch with me. <laughs> we will help you. But the first thing you need, whether you've done any training or not, get consent, get consent, get consent, get consent, get consent. Start today. Get verbal consent and case note it if you have to. Start today. You must get consent. We've got a whole range of procedures that we use to inform people of that we're animals here and of the risks and all that sort of stuff. We've got a whole range of ways that we do that, which we can talk about in more detail if you need help with that. But just let me, you know, nothing's gone wrong so far. You're all good. You just need to start getting consent. You know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where you go, okay, I got going to get this organized before you know, nothing's gone wrong yet. So I'm going to just quickly get this organized and you can, that will be the main thing that you'll be in trouble for. If anything goes wrong, is that consent? 
And consent in different environments will look different. So yeah. how we navigate consent in a school environment will be different yeah. because we're working with a huge population and we're yeah. also working potentially with visitors to the school and all sorts of things. So we do have to navigate that differently. Um, yeah. It's a little more complex than um, private practice setting, but it's really important that we're considering that and not just forcing people, here's my dog, aren't they amazing? Let's all love them. That's not how it works. To make um, safe nursing homes are a good example for that too, because it was hard. Um, we got we had to get the lifestyle manager to organise that for us, and they essentially they're caring for the residents. So um, we would get the consent from them uh, because we've booked the visit. We used to take like ten dogs in there at a time. <clears throat> so. And then- um, yeah, 10 dogs and handlers in there. Uh, so we used to get consent from them, but you can't just like rock up and just roll down the hallway and knock on the doors and ask if people would like a visit because those people that you're asking in those rooms don't always have power of attorney over their own decisions because their decision-making capacity may be reduced because of cognitive decline. So if you go and ask old Barry if he would like a pat from the dog and Barry's like yes and then you're in there and then you find out from Barry's family two weeks later he's um immunocompromised and could not have anything like that near him and da 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 now he's sick and he's blah 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 because that's because you did not have proper consent does that make sense Mm. like it is different in different settings um, but you can't just roll up and, you know, like I can't get consent from a five-year-old child. <laughs> like, <laughs> But it's what, what we're doing when we're shifting that responsibility, we're explaining to the lifestyle manager in that yes. context all of the various risks. So Sam's referring to talking about um, the transmission of health illnesses between Mm -hmm. animals and humans. And there's lots of things that we're having in a conversation with that coordinator that's shifting the responsibility because they're making informed decisions. They know the clientele. It would be silly for us to try and understand who everyone we're we're meeting and um, what that's going to look like. They're in the best position to make those decisions and um, navigate that but we're helping them understand what does it mean to have dogs on site what does it mean um, for the types of dogs and the the presentation the training level of the teams that are coming what what is the risk so that they can then make selections and facilitate the interaction so we have to think about who are we shifting that responsibility to and have we done an appropriate um, handover with them so that they're making informed decisions because that yes. would fall over very quickly if we just said hey we love dogs we think dogs work really well in nursing home visits can we bring them and they're like mm. that's a great activity I was looking for something for Wednesday so let's just pencil it in it has to be a much deeper conversation yeah. around that absolutely mm. um, and you know the nursing homes aren't always the best you know they're a pretty bad rep for not making great decisions. So, you know, but that's the the best that we can do is speak to the nursing home and have them informed. And then, you know, hopefully they do the right thing by contacting the residents, family members and finding out and doing, doing their due process. We can't do that for them. They, that's, they have to do that. Um, But, you know, let's say something happens to old Barry and he's quite, 
unwell and it may cause, you know, end of life or, you know, something like that. And someone starts asking questions, have we, are we going to be able to show that, well, well, this is the documentation that I provided to the nursing home regarding the therapy dog visits. And these are the rooms that they told me not to visit. So um, the rooms that were, you know, they might do it that way. They might say, yep, everywhere except here, 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 and here might be easier. Huge places, some of them. Um, well, these are the rooms they told me, you know, were suitable or like we used to get, um, we'd use the common area, um, the communal area. And we'd say, you know, therapy dog visit at this time. So the residents that wanted to participate could come out and be there. Um, you know, this is what they told me. Uh, so this is what happened and da, da, da. Well, then, like Amy said, you are shifting the responsibilities to go, like, well, why? This is all my checklist and everything that's been done. Uh, so you're going to have to speak to Lynn from lifestyle management at the nursing home about why Barry's room was or was not on that list. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, which obviously we, the ultimate goal is for bad things to not happen. Uh, and we are going to reduce the number of bad things that happen if we think ahead. Um, and you having conversations like this, like I'm really hoping a conversation be a bit all over the place, but um, I'm really hoping that this is like planting a few little seeds in people's minds about like, hmm, yeah, because I do school stuff and I just assume like that I just rock up to the school and do this reading program and I just assume like whatever. But I, I don't know if those kids have got consent. I don't know. Do like, even know. The parents know I'm here. Also, I sometimes see people sharing some stuff on social media that I think, I wonder if they've got permissions yeah. for that stuff. Because we, we obviously have Maxine, so we have, um, you know, dedicated time to that. Uh, but generally speaking, I do wonder, you know, the easiest thing for us is when people share their stuff on like their school pages and stuff, and then we can just reshare it. <laughs> Sorry on the internet. But I think it's uh, also, especially in a school environment, it's mm. not just about do they have permission? Are the parents going to be upset because they have a fear or a phobia or an allergy? But there's also cultural considerations. Absolutely. Which can be really harmful to families that have found out, well, my child is not appropriate and I haven't authorised this and it's really upset us. You don't want to be navigating those conversations. You want to be planning for them and respecting individual decisions and family decisions. Awareness and communication is really important. We should do a whole podcast on cultural stuff because we have heard some fascinating, yeah. fascinating stuff um, from our students about what types of cultural differences they've come across. And it is like there are some cultures that like they – they just don't, the, the kid's just not allowed to interact with dogs. Like it's fascinating, fascinating. Specific colours of dogs and all sorts of things. I'd really, I'd love to Oh, learn. yeah, we're, we're going to have to talk about that. That's more yeah, that's interesting because I don't know it's, anything and yeah. I know I wouldn't be the only one. No. It, and, it, well, you know, like, I mean, the basis, like the very base knowledge is there are cultural differences in how people feel about dogs like <laughs> some people feel differently about dogs just because you're a sydney dog mum doesn't mean everybody else is a sydney dog exactly mom. okay so <laughs> but if you <laughs> if you're surrounding yourself like we do we surround ourselves with other animal people because we're crazy dog people do you know i'm a crazy horse person so i'm around people who like horses and dogs all the time so it can easily slip 
from your mind and like my businesses are around like animals do you know what I mean so people come to us for this so I don't get it as often but certainly when I worked in other settings so like at Headspace especially um but yes certainly other settings and things like that it's easy for me to forget but there are so many cultural differences and we have been arrogant in you know this whole therapy dog thing and the research is actually probably quite racist like I don't know if that's the right word or whatever but the way biased um just like a lot of our research is biased it's like I guess if this is if it's like a middle class white person then that's what this means yes so uh yeah there's like a lot to it but we're just like running around like yeah dog therapy is so fantastic for everyone not taking into account like (laughs) except people that have significant cultural differences And unless you've thought about that and you've thought about the implications for your setting, it's very easy to upset, offend and cause distress to people, whether you see it or not. You don't, some people aren't going to tell you, actually, I was really uncomfortable. I was really distressed when that happened, but, Mm. and that's not okay. It's not okay for someone to experience that and not be able, um, and we can't repeat that. So we have an obligation to think about how we're working so that everyone feels safe and comfortable and has the choice to participate or not participate and how we handle dogs, how we enter a space, how we navigate a space has implications for everyone we're working with. So um, I think our really big message today is don't be naive. Um, come on a journey and invest some time into thinking about how you're going to do things professionally, respectfully, yeah. ethically, safely. And that's where your risk management becomes a really important part of that. Yeah, it really does. So we're going to, um, you know, we were talking about this this morning. <clears throat> we're going to put a bit more, uh stuff together i'm going to put a few more things together and things like that because this is something that's popping up for us uh fairly regularly so if you are looking for help on you know formalizing your policies and procedures and risk management paperwork and things like that just send us an email get in touch with us um because we're going to put together another package we've got a package of stuff that's kind of like you're get getting started stuff um, consent forms and things like that but we're going to put together something um, more sort of formalized because we have had people asking about it so get in touch with us if you need that done um, otherwise also yeah. let us know if there's a topic that you'd like mm. us to elaborate on because I feel like it's just so big oh but, yeah yeah if yeah. there's something that our listeners want to particularly specifically hear about Hmm. please let yep. us know definitely yeah we'd be happy to do like a Q&A as well so if people want to send through um questions and stuff like that and we can answer them for you we'll put an episode together just answering your questions and stuff sounds hmm. great cool all right amazing well thanks, thanks for the chat ladies yeah thank you thanks Amy thanks Sam no bye see you next time bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you're interested in studying with Therapy Dogs Australia or you have a few more questions before deciding, please get in touch with us by emailing courses at therapydog.com.au or visiting our website at www.therapydog.com.au for more information and FAQs.